Hello and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with doctor and professor Peggy Mason from the Department of Neurobiology. Professor Mason is here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome, Professor Peggy Mason. It's great to have you on the course. Thanks for having me. So, Peggy, can you give me a general idea of your career path, beginning from your college years all the way to your current position at the University of Chicago? I went to school interested in studying evolution, ecology evolution. I was sort of a devotee of Stephen Jay Gould. I read Stephen Jay Gould when I was in high school. So that's what I thought I wanted to do, but I didn't really like it. So then in... Somewhere in the third year, I switched over to neurobiology, hoping that I would like that. And indeed, I did. So I wrote a thesis in neurobiology, and then I went to graduate school in neurobiology, and I kept on liking it. So I I went and did a postdoc in neurobiology, and then luckily I found a job at University of Chicago. So they are happy to have me continue my love affair with neurobiology, which is what I'm doing. So how would you explain your research interests to someone who knows nothing about neurobiology? I have had a variety of different research interests in my career. I spent over 20 years trying to understand the cellular mechanisms by which morphine works and trying to understand uh, what that may be doing for an animal where there is there's no poppy involved. There's no opium involved. So for example, we're able to discover that during certain behaviors, animals, and by extension us, are insensitive to pain and to other external stimuli. So while, for example, while you're eating, while you're actually ingesting, you're insensitive to to pain. And this is why I think if you have a baby and you're going to do a heel stick or you're going to do some kind of a, a needle injection, what what do you do? You give them a pacifier. They don't, they don't even actually need to have any food on there. They doesn't need to have any sugar water in there. Just the actual ingestion of the saliva will do it. So this is, I spent um, quite a few years doing that. And then around 2008, I started looking at helping in rats and that has been the dominant focus of my lab for the last 12 years. So what we were interested in, and this was work that I started with a, at that time, a graduate student involved Ben Ami Bartal, who's now runs her own lab at University of Tel Aviv. And what we were interested in was whether empathy and helping was something that was innate and biological about us or whether it's something that's taught. In other words, do you help other people because you're taught by your parents or you're taught that in Sunday school? Or do you help because you're a mammal and you're a good mammal? And we were guessing that it was the latter. So what we ended up doing was setting up a situation where there was one rat that was in a clear acrylic tube and then Another rat on the outside, the the tube actually had one door that could only be opened from the outside. So 
the free rat could decide to ignore the trapped rat or could decide to go and open the door for the trapped rat. And lo and behold, they were very, the, the free rats were very perturbed by the rat being trapped. And they worked quite diligently to figure out how to open the door, which in rat land is not a very easy problem. So it took them a few days, but they figured it out. And we, since then, we've, we've explored this space a lot and we've learned things such as the well-known bystander effect by which people are less likely to help another individual when in a group than when alone. The rats show it as well. So there's so much, most of what we see in, in natural helping behavior is something that's not exceptional to humans. It's it's shared by rats. In fact, I've very much enjoyed watching the rats. I, I feel as though we could learn things from them. And more recently, my research has changed or I've added another piece to it again, where I'm investigating the phenotype and genotype of a, a former online student who has a one in the world neurological condition. And, and that we hope to publish our first finding in the next coming months. All of that sounds like really fascinating stuff with some interesting implications for human beings. I am, I do want to ask you though about what you were like when you were young and what you thought you were going to be when you grew up. When I was young, I was just totally into animals, non-human animals. So from the time of about six or seven, it's a little embarrassing to think about this, but from the time of six or seven, I did taxidermy and I did taxidermy for years into my teens. I did this with Dr. Charles Handley from the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. And it's a great skill. And I, I've always loved doing taxidermy and appreciated having that as a backup skill for, for my life. I worked at the National Zoo when I was a teenager, and I thought very seriously about trying to become somebody who worked at a natural, at a preserve, at an animal preserve somewhere far away from Washington, D.C., but I just didn't really think that I could land one of those jobs. I, I thought those jobs were probably very rare, and I didn't think I could land. So I decided to explore more traditional science. And that's what took me into my undergraduate years, where I initially looked at animal behavior and the evolution and evolution. So this was really in the mold of Stephen Jay Gould. And then I just didn't like I didn't like the animal behavior. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I didn't like the evolution part of it. I really liked the animal behavior part of it. And arguably, you could say that I'm back to animal behavior. But the bottom line is that the central nervous system and the nervous system produces behavior. And that's really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the behavior. I'm interested in how the nervous system produces it. Both of those are equally interesting to me. And when you were in your middle and high school years, were you like a good student? Did you excel at sciences in particular? Yeah, I was kind of a regular good student. I wouldn't say I was a prodigy or anything. I was just a good student. I liked sciences. I never, and I always hated hospitals. So the pre-med thing was 
absolutely never an attraction to me. I was never diverted by that or distracted by that. And you've talked a little bit about taxidermy, which I can definitely see the connection there with what you're doing now. But are there any other memories from that period in your life that you can look back on and say, wow, it really makes sense that I ended up where I did? I just was always interested in in animals. I, you know, I would find animals that I decided needed to live with us and then the menagerie would increase. And when I found dead animals, I would either skin them or dissect them. So yeah, just really interested in animals. What kind of animals did you bring home? Well, I did bring home a, a dog or two that had a nice home, and but I had convinced myself that it it didn't, so that it needed a new home. You know, just a kid thing. We had an iguana, we had fish, snakes and turtles, that kind of thing. Were there any obstacles that you had to overcome on your way to becoming a professor or even after you became a professor? Science is hard. So the obstacles I've had to overcome are trying to figure out what's the truth here, what's the truth in whatever I'm looking at. I feel very lucky because I've had fantastic people to work with and talk with and get ideas from. I don't feel very obstacled. Well, on that note of, of support, has there been anyone in your life in particular, this could be a friend, a family member, a colleague, a mentor, who has been extremely supportive of you and really helped you get to where you are today? I'd say everyone has been supportive of me. People are, are people have been very great. My mother has been supportive, probably in the most influential way because she's pushy. She's not a person that gives compliments for the sake of giving compliments. So if she thought I could do better, she would tell me. And at the same time, she's really supportive of me. And also from my mother, I learned how to teach. My mother is an art teacher, is an art teacher, and. I learned, I watched her and saw how to teach. And that's been one of the great, most enjoyable pieces of my life in science is to teach and to, to work with students, both in the laboratory and in the classroom, and to watch them grow and change and change their minds and think new thoughts and doubt themselves and all, all of that. That's just been incredible. It's been an incredible journey that I've enjoyed very much. So speaking of teaching, why did you decide to go into academia and become a professor? Never considered anything else. This is just, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to ask questions and think about think new thoughts and try to figure out the answers to those questions. I'm not a particularly practical person, so I really like knowledge for knowledge's sake. I love expanding human knowledge. Yeah, so that's just incredibly attractive to me. To be free to ask any question I want and find the answer, find whatever answer exists. And I know you switched to neurobiology in your college career. What was it about neurobiology that you enjoyed so much? When I switched to neurobiology, I like behavior, but I wanted to know more about how that happens. What's the explanation for the behavior. And that comes from the nervous system. So I wanted to understand the nervous system and understanding how some simple behaviors. I remember when I was in college, I did a, a paper on the jam avoiding response, which is a response that electric eels do to, to make sure that they know which is their electric field and which 
signals come from the environment. And I just thought that was super cool that I could understand the how that would work on a very mechanistic kind of way. The other thing I really have always loved about neurobiology is actually what I do with my hands. And this is something I tell the students all the time. If you're going to go into science and do something with your hands that you actually enjoy. So when I was in college, I was in John Dowling's lab and John studied the retina. And so I put these little glass microwave pipettes into cells and I could flash lights and I could watch as the cell responded. It was like having a conversation. I'm flashing light. The cell is responding. It is such a trick. And doing physiology, it is in fact a conversation. You're just trying to figure out what is it that this neuron wants to tell you. And you have to figure out what you're going to ask it to figure out what it wants to tell you. And the actual mechanics of doing these experiments are, are very fun to me. I, I just enjoyed it. So then it was, then there was no looking back. Are there people in your field now who continue to inspire you? Oh, absolutely. The field continues to inspire me. I, I think it's exciting what where we're going and what we're doing. I tend to be somebody who's more on the less on the technical and more on the biological end of things. So I'm really inspired by people asking really interesting questions. And Michael Brecht did an experiment where he got rats to play a game with him, not for food, but just to play the game. That's a great experiment. I love that kind of thing. So people people attacking the world and really trying to understand in an open way how we mammals work is very exciting. And I don't mean to be a mammal chauvinist, but I have a my good friend Cliff Ragsdale understands how the cephalopods work, the squids and the octopuses, and, and I have great admiration for that and interest in that as well. But I, I like people asking novel questions about things that you didn't think about as biological. I enjoyed it when one of my students wanted to, John Havlick, he really wanted, he pressed me to do the bystander effect experiment. I didn't think we could do it. And he says, I really want to do it. So we figured it out and we did it. And lo and behold, rats have the same are affected by bystanders in the same way that humans are. So that's really, that's really novel. And, and I think it tells us something. It tells us that by default, we're, we're helpful species. We're not the tooth and claw individuals that, that some would have us be. This is anti-cynical science. Yeah. No, I really appreciate it. I'm going to bring this up next time we talk. Speaking of questions, is there something that you aspire to do in the future? Perhaps it's a question that you want to answer. I aspire to continue my work. I want to understand more about helping. I also want to expand more and more into ethics. And I think that neurobiology brings a particular lens to ethics. So I've been very interested. I've grown progressively more interested in ethics. I just completed a, a year-long ethical fellowship at the McLean Center, and I teach uh, a couple classes on ethics through a neuro lens. And I think that what's interesting about it is that with a few 
facts with a few pieces of neurobiological information, everyone can weigh in on this. And this is not privileged information. It's not privileged opinions that people's opinions matter. That's what makes up our ethics. Ethics is relative. There are no answers. It's not, it's not calculus. It's not math. So I find that very interesting. And it, and one of the things I've really enjoyed about teaching ethics is that the problems that I pose to the students are are odd enough that there is no red or blue answer to them. They they have to break out of any preconceived idea of what they should think to decide what they do think. And my goal is always to sow doubt. So my I'm particularly happy when I see the students change their mind and flip-flop <laughs> in the course of, of a single uh, conversation on, on a topic. And I find that very interesting, and I think it's relevant to the most important questions that we as a society face today. So what would your advice be for someone who is considering entering the field of neurobiology and also going into academia. Yeah, so do it. If if you need to do it, if you don't need to do it, you shouldn't do it. But if you need to do it, yeah, absolutely go for it and and just slay the dragons that tell you you have to be practical. Just go for it. Follow your intellectual curiosity and go try do not try to be strategic or practical or any of that. Be dreamy and see where that takes you. And finally, Peggy, what is the most gratifying thing that you do in your job? The most gratifying thing I do is find find really cool things, have a great conversation about what our results mean, about how to do an analysis, have a great conversation with a student. There's a lot of, I, I spend most of my time fairly gratified. For somebody such as me who just really likes the life of the mind, this is a dream job and a dream place to do the dream job. I've been speaking with Professor Peggy Mason. Professor, thank you for your time. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>